bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that sets us free. Thank you for revealing to us in Scripture what salvation and sanctification looks like to you. Thank you for our predestination, for our calling, for our purpose. Our prototype hung on a cross to reveal to us that your grace is enough and sufficient so that even the greatest of tasks can be met with grace. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, Gospel, Salvation, Sanctification, Part 42. Uh, just one last time with a bit of encouragement. I'm going to uh, let you know right up front, too, that tonight has a lot of moving parts. So um, I'm trying, I'm doing the best I can as a teacher to bring a lot of things together. Um, not difficult things, but nonetheless, a lot of different sort of facets, if you would. Uh, and that's that word to the wise that I started with on Tuesday, that there are multiple dimensions to salvation and sanctification. I mean, those are our primary thoughts at the forefront of our studies right now, salvation and sanctification. We've gone through the first perspective, which was salvation perspective, which had those three tenses. Uh, now we're sort of poised on sanctification perspectives, and there's three phases that we're going to cover, and we're just in between right now. And he's giving us some additional thoughts as we move, and I, I'm convinced of it, based on my own training, why he's doing it. He's saying, don't leave salvation behind, just like we didn't leave the gospel behind when we move to, let's say, salvation and sanctification. We don't leave the notion of the gospel behind when we go study another quote-unquote doctrine. And that's what he's doing here. He's saying, don't leave salvation behind when you go to sanctification. Don't do that thing. That's why he keeps bringing us up to the big picture. So in any sense, um, there are multiple dimensions to salvation and sanctification, which is why seeking a unidimensional definition introduces doctrinal errors. In other words, don't get too um, cut and dry with your definitions. You know, short definitions are nice for speaking terms, for communicating uh, swiftly and efficiently, but uh, do not do that thing and just seek out very short definitions for things. It's uh, been a cause for a lot of doctrinal errors over the years. I I'm convinced of that as well. Um, so keep that in mind as we press on. We'll begin our lesson the way he's had us begin now for a week. I'll give you the Amplified. 1 Corinthians 2, 6-8. to Remember, we've had a lot of uh, talk about predestination. And predestination, one of the great values of discussing it in the midst of salvation and sanctification is that it elevates the certainty. It gives us a sense of um, confidence when we speak of things like salvation and sanctification. Because you know, Scripture says it, that you've been predestined, that these blessings, these facts are just that, facts. And as far as God's concerned, it's already done. Your tomorrow is already done as far as God is concerned. And the next day, and the next day. So um, with that said, 1 Corinthians 2, 6, uh, Yet we do not speak wisdom among those spiritually mature, believers who have teachable hearts and a greater understanding, but it is a higher wisdom, not the wisdom of this present age, nor of the rulers and leaders of this age who are passing away. Yet, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the wisdom once hidden from man, but now revealed to us by God, that wisdom which God predestined, there's our word, predestined before the ages to our glory, to lift us into the glory of his presence None of the rulers of this age recognized and understood this wisdom, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. I also want to review that passage that really gave us some valuable big picture insight on Tuesday. Go to Acts 4.27. Acts 4.27 
Again, for whatever reason, he's been front-ending our lessons with predestination now for over a week. And again, I, I believe that a good portion of that, the emphasis or the, the sort of the stimulus for it would be to elevate our thinking and not just elevate our thinking, but have us remain in that thinking even while we deep dive into the sort of weeds of things so that we have a certain confidence and things build upon each other. Acts 4.27, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined, that's that Greek word pro orizo, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. That was a fantastic point from Tuesday up here on the board. Your purpose predestined to occur. Predestination always carries with it the purpose of God. And that makes it very personal for each of us. In other words, you've been predestined for a purpose. In other words, he's got plans for you. He has a will for each individual, uh, each one of his children. Uh, remember, predestination is for believers only. So predestination always carries with it the purpose of God. He didn't just decide to bless you out for the sake of blessing you out. There are things that he's going to do in your life that even right now, I mean, let's face it, I can only speak for myself, but I mean, 15 years ago, I would have never imagined I'd be on this hill in North Dighton teaching you fine folks. <laughs> right? I mean, you know what I mean? Who would have known? Who would have known that any of us would have been here even this evening? Some of you are like, yeah, man, if you saw my yesterday, it's lucky I'm even here alive today, you know, this kind of a thing. And so he is going to do things with us. He's already predestined us to these things. We may not even know about them yet. A lot of people are going through a lot of tough times, and everything's relative. Everything's relative. Of course, we don't have the tough times that people in some tribe in Africa have with money, but we have other relatively difficult challenges. There's a lot of people going through challenges right now, whether it's work, relationships, what have you. And it's nice to hear that they have faith. You know, they take the hit on the chin and they say, you know, this God's got something better for me, obviously. And that's what he's trying to get us to cling to, that if we short-circuit grace by self-sanctifying, we're basically stunting our own spiritual growth. In other words, there's a certain amount of faith that we're supposed to have so that he can prove to us, think of 1 Peter 1.7, the proof of your faith, so that he can prove to us that he's not a liar, that he can do wondrous things with the least of us. If we only just, what, believe, I guess? If we only just stick with it? And that's what he's encouraging us. That's what elements like predestination, and predestination is very lofty. Divine decree, very lofty. Calling, election, very lofty, right? These are things that, that sort of tug us up into his realm of thinking. And he does that for us so that we are encouraged to know that even tomorrow you may not know what's going on, but he's already predestined you for some blessing tomorrow. And if you're humble, he'll pour it right out on your lap. And if you're not, maybe he waits another day. Maybe he waits another week or a year until you're humble enough, until you stop, you know, doing what Einstein said, the same thing over and over and expecting a different outcome. So your purpose predestined. Predestination always carries with it the purpose of God. His will is intrinsically represented in every fact, every blessing, every grace gift, even suffering and discipline. For some of you, the topic of suffering dominates your life. For some of you, the topic of suffering dominates your life. Whether it's chronic, physical, or emotional pain, or what have you, it's always there, looming. The world will tell you that you are just unlucky, or that maybe even that 
you know, your God has something against you. These are things that sow doubt. Sort of like Job's friends. Now let's suppose, we know that Job was innocent. He was blameless and upright, no one liked him. Now, being honest with ourselves, it's oftentimes, I would say most often, <laughs> not relatable to our circumstances because, I, I mean, let's face it, right? Obviously, DJ isn't on board with that statement. <laughs> Sinner. <laughs> right? But the world will tell you all kinds of things. And if you're going through, let's just call it undeserved suffering, um, I'm hesitant to use the word because it's very gray. But nonetheless, say you're going through undeserved suffering like Job. Well, his friends suggested to him that he must be deserving of it. Maybe God had something against him. So take Eliphaz, if you remember the three of them. Eliphaz, the so-called oldest or elder in the group, who was terribly mistaken. He proposed that the innocent do not suffer. Remember this from our old series on Job and suffering, 63 parts? Eliphaz proposed this false doctrine, that it was a one-to-one relationship. If you were a righteous man, then you prospered. And he also proposed if you were an unrighteous man, then you suffered. And then he used his own personal experience, this kind of a thing. And he said that was it. That's the doctrine. Righteous men prosper. Unrighteous men suffer. Which, as we know, uh, after a long series, and as most of you know now, hopefully you're comfortable with, that's not true. But let's look at it. Hold your thumb there. Go to Job 4.1. Job 4.1, just to visit an old friend. Job 4.1. I had so much fun doing that series. And, you know, I had to, well, I don't care. I just, let's just say I had a lot of fun doing it. But it's not on the website anymore. I still actually get requests for it still. Yeah, whole families go through it. And I had to, I'm praying on it right now. Because um, remember, there was interwoven into some of those lessons uh, some false doctrines that I don't want to spread. So maybe you'll have me do it again someday in a short order and we'll get it pristine. Job 4.1, then Eliphaz the Tamanite answered, If one ventures a word with you, will you become impatient? But who can refrain from speaking? Behold, you have admonished many, and you have strengthened weak hands. So Eliphaz is speaking to Job. Your words have helped the tottering to stand, and you have strengthened feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence? and the integrity of your ways, your hope. Remember now, whoever perished being innocent? Or where were the upright destroyed? According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they come to an end. So that's a good summary of the way Eliphaz postured that false doctrine, that graphical doctrine up there on the board. He said it's a one-to-one. He said, if you're unrighteous, then you suffer. So if you're suffering, you must be unrighteous. This, of course, is the errant logic that we studied out in great detail about five years ago with the 63-part series on the doctrine of suffering with Job. The correct depiction of applied doctrine is this. This is actually the correct depiction. You can be a righteous man and prosper, or you can be a righteous man and suffer. You can be an unrighteous man and prosper. David laments about that. Job does. And you can be an unrighteous man and suffer. So it has everything to do with the sovereign will of God. The point for that friendly reminder from five years ago relates to what we just noted. Go back in Acts 4.27 now. So that little friendly reminder... Where an innocent man suffered grave injustices, yet God had a plan. I mean, was not, look at, was not Jesus righteous? Of course he was. But he suffered like nobody. So him alone, I mean, we get the you know, privilege of knowing that account. Acts 4.27, for truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus. Holy means 
sanctified, set apart, we'll get to that when we get to sanctification, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So in other words, there was an innocent man, the innocent man, who was suffering unjustly, and God predestined it for Jesus. Which means, he being our prototype, he being the author and perfecter of our faith, etc., etc., then we can expect to be righteous and suffer at times. But we can also be unrighteous and suffer as well. Um, up here on the board, again, your purpose predestined. Predestination always carries with it the purpose of God. His will is intrinsically represented in every fact, every blessing, every grace gift, even suffering and discipline. So here's the point the Spirit's been ferreting out of Scripture for us, and I'm reviewing at this juncture. Grace, you were predestined to suffer for Christ's sake. Go to Philippians 1.29. Philippians 1.29. So then you were predestined to suffer for Christ's sake. So you could be uh, totally in the right, totally righteous, and suffer for it. You can do what's right and suffer for it. And uh, that's why we have other encouraging scripture, like do not grow weary for doing what is good. You were predestined to suffer for Christ's sake. And that's something you have to let settle into your soul. Philippians 1.29, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Anyone here? Um, anyone, anyone here um, feel like they've ever suffered an injustice at work because you're an open Christian? I have. I'm the only one? Wow. Thank you, Robin. Retribution, huh? I mean, everybody here, whether you see it or not, I would argue that everyone here has suffered some injustice at work, whether you've seen it or not. Why? Because I'm a clairvoyant? No. Because I'm trying to tell you business? No. Because Scripture says it. You just might not know it yet. Satan could be even masking it for a time. Who knows? Philippians 1.29, though, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Suffering is a form of grace. Up here on the board, granted from charismai. Charis means grace. In context, in Philippians 1.29, it refers to the fact that suffering is a grace gift. It follows then that if you suffer, undeservedly in view here, then you are actually being blessed out. So it's a blessing to actually take heat for Christ's sake in this world. And I've taught this in the past. If you are skedaddling through this world and you never get any heat from the world, you might need to stop and take a deep breath and say, what's really going on here? Either I'm the most amazing creature ever that God's just going to bless me out. He says, I'm never going to give you any kind of suffering because I just love you so much. No, he loves you so much he's going to give you suffering. He is granted by grace that you will suffer. So some people actually have to stop. You have to stop sometimes and say, what's really going on here? Why am I, why am I, why is it so smooth sailing for me? I'm not saying you go conjure something up either, right? <laughs> As a side note, before any of us ran off proclaiming I'm suffering for Jesus, the Spirit gave us some things to tease out the truth in our own souls. Whenever we consider our own plight with suffering, we must address it appropriately in our own souls. That was a theme from... Tuesday evening. It's a big deal, folks, to say and to at least understand the nature of your suffering. Were you or were you not the root cause of it even? And I gave you a list and I'm not going to put it up there again. Tonight I have an analogy that might help with this. 
So you walk through a door. Let's call it just another day in your life. The door closes behind you and then it disappears because you can never undo your choices once made. Right? I mean, you can't redo the breath you just took. You can't, you can backtrack, but you're never going to be truly backtracking. So the door closes behind you and then it disappears. Before you are two unmarked doors. You don't know exactly where they lead. In front of the doors is a small table with two keys that presumably unlock these doors. One red, one blue. No, this is not the matrix. The keys are identical, except for their colors. Under each key, there's a note that says, read me. You say to yourself, come on, I don't have time to read stuff. I'm in a hurry. So you grab the red key, you unlock the door on the left and walk through. You fall 10 feet down onto a foam rubber mat. You've twisted your ankle a little, but nothing too serious. You look around and the only way out of this pit is a set of stairs that lead you right back up to the platform where the two doors are closed again. You scale the stairs with the same key in your hand and this time you use it to open up the door on the right. And guess what? You fall 10 feet again like last time. Frustrated, you get up even sore than you were after your last fall. Even though you're hurting, you sprint up the steps by twos, slam the red key down on the table, pick up the blue key, and open the left door. Plop. So now you're furious, taking the steps by threes, even though your lower back is jarred and you're dealing with stabbing pain. You open the right door with the blue key and plop. So you crawl up the stairs on your hands and knees and say, God, what is going on here? And God answers, read the notes. Since you can hardly move at this point, you figure you don't have any options but to lean up against the leg of the table, reach over and grab the first note, which reads, both of these notes are identical. Either key will work just fine in either door. But you must read this note first before walking through either door to find your deliverance. You unlock a door with a key, and when you walk through it, there's a Boy Scout leader standing there who says, Congratulations, you've earned your deserved suffering badge. And he proceeds to pin it on your shirt. The moral of the story? The best decisions are made when we take the time to evaluate the context of our circumstances. This is analogous to lacking wisdom and insight and praying to God for directions on what to do or not do next. And that's what He wants from you. God's not a God that tells you what tomorrow is even going to be like. So what does He say? He says, I want your intimacy right now. I want you, I taught a series, I want you to live right now. I want you to live as if today is the last day. Imminency of Christ, anyone, right? I want you to live as if today is the last day every single day of your life. doesn't mean be a, an idiot and don't plan for everything and be irresponsible because I have scripture for that. But I want you to live, I want your attitude to be as if literally Christ is coming an hour from now. I want you to have that fervency always at the tip of your mind, the tip of your tongue. The gospel is ready to be given to whoever is willing to listen. That's what I want from you. I don't, I'm not going to tell you tomorrow because once I tell you tomorrow, you're going to either do this or this. Or start sweating beads of sweat and do pirouettes and you don't know what to do because you've got one day left before such and such happens. He's not interested in that. He says, read the note for today. 
One day at a time. One door at a time. So the best decisions, and that's grace, by the way. The best decisions are made when we take the time to evaluate the context of our circumstances. Remember, context with suffering is a big deal. This is analogous to lacking wisdom and insight in praying to God for directions on what to do or not do next. If you refuse to, quote, read the notes, which is equivalent to obey God's commands, then you can expect to suffer as fruit of self-righteousness and self-sanctification make their way into your life. Again, the point he's developing for us is that you've been granted by grace the suffering in your life. And you can even broaden that. That's why the, it's, a, it's a gray line, I'm telling you, between deserved and undeserved suffering. Those are just sort of categorical things that help us talk. Because it's not like just because you did something stupid is grace disappears. A certain blessing might be held off for a time, but His grace is still there to pick you back up, you know, the stairway back up again. Let's try it over. Let's do it again. I know you're limping now. I'm crawling now. Maybe when you're crawling, you'll read the note because there's nothing else to do. Anyone ever feel like that? There's nothing else to do. I'm broken. My way's not working. And He says... Then read the note. I gave you a whole big book of notes. And they're not cliff notes, obviously. So don't be doing short definitions artificially. Up here on the board. Whenever we consider our own plight with suffering, we must address it appropriately in our own souls. That means you have to go to Him. It turns out that Most suffering is arguably self-inflicted. And when we are stubborn enough to keep climbing back out of the pit and then walk right back into it, well, there are consequences to that sin. There will be pain and suffering. Every time you fell in the pit, you get a little worse, right? Isn't that what happens when you inflict wounds on yourself? Every time you do the same sin, it gets worse. And there are consequences. And by grace, He gives you pain receptors. Remember I taught that series on that, don't ask me to remember the technical name, but the little girl, remember, who couldn't feel any pain? And she just basically went around and busted her bones up and couldn't feel, she was a mess. That, imagine if God said, I'm not going to allow any pain in your life, even when you hurt yourself. What would you do? How long would you last? Most of us would last about 38 seconds. Right? Some of us would eat ourselves to death like a goldfish. Some of us would, I don't know, who knows what. I know what some people would do. They would spend like 17 hours on a tanning bed. They'd be like, this doesn't hurt at all. You don't get that? And they would probably die from toxicity or whatever the heck happens after hour number five. You know, people would do all kinds of things. So God gave you pain receptors, let's call it emotional, physical, to get you to that place where maybe you can't move anymore. Maybe you're literally crippled emotionally, physically, something. And I believe I've seen it all. And I believe that he uses areas of our lives that we consider areas of strength at times. And he goes, just like that. He goes, I'm going to crush you in that area where you're flexing because it's causing you harm. So there are consequences and there will be pain and suffering. But whose fault is that? So self-inflicted wounds, if you are suffering due to past mistakes, God's grace is that you feel the weight of it so that He can teach you something. 
His grace is in delivering you from it spiritually, but He may not relieve you of the consequences. In any case, the baseline principle is that grace must be appropriated correctly in your soul. He know, we know that He'll give us grace when we do right or wrong. We know that he'll, His grace will remain whether it's, quote, deserved or undeserved suffering. We know these things. Your job is to confess what's correct. Your job is to be humble. So grace must be appropriated correctly in your soul. Furthermore, the practical side up here on the board, suffering and grace, you'll never fully understand God's will if you refuse his conviction. You must confess the truth about yourself. If you lack that wisdom, which is really an element of introspection, then go directly to him in prayer and stay humble. James 1.5 up here on the board, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. He really does want you to go through the door. He'd much rather prefer you stop falling into the pit and having to get back up and come back around. I call that dysfunction junction. You can call it whatever you want. Been there, done that. He doesn't want that for you, other than to train you. So maybe you don't do it a little bit further down the line. But you've got to at least be honest with him. Second of all, on suffering and grace, pray, pray, pray. If you lack the wisdom to understand the nature of your suffering, then pray. First Thessalonians 5, what, 16 to 18? Pray without ceasing. Why do you think that is? And that's part of that one sentence that ends with, because this is what's pleasing to God. Why do you think that is? Maybe because he's your creator. Maybe because he wants you and he wants your attention. Most people, how many people can actually say in their soul right now that he has your undivided attention? I mean, on average even, say, look at today. How long did he have your undivided attention? How much time of your day was he right there with you? Ask yourself that. Because that's what he wants. He wants to walk with you. I always think, of, remember the three-legged race? Remember that? Everybody falls down. It's like that, right? He, we use the ox analogy, unequally yoked versus yoked. We want to be yoked with him. He wants to be yoked with us. So pray. Even if you're mistaken for a time, which we all are. Remember, the Spirit intercedes for you in prayer. This brought up another very valuable point. That at least, listen, at least go to Him in prayer. Even if you're in a, you know, I'm in a mood. So? He already knows you're in a jackass mood. You don't think He already knows? What's better, you're a jackass on your own? Or you're a jackass in prayer? Seriously, which one's better? Better off being a jackass in prayer. It's not like you can offend them any more than you already have. Right? Oh, you're going to play pretend like you do with your, your friends and your spouse? I'm not, no, I'm fine. Fine. <laughs> fine. You're not fine. And God's like... <laughs> right? He's like, you want to be a, a... Oh, I almost said it. You want to be a, be, a... Or a... You want to be one of the B words? Right? You want, to be one, you want to be a little punk? Then be a punk, because I already know you're a punk. But you're the one playing pretend. You're the one that thinks you're fooling everybody. You're not fooling me. Let's be honest here. Because we're not going to go anywhere. Because this is what's going to happen. You're going to be dishonest. You're going to go, ooh, plop. And crawl back up the stairs. Plop. You're going to crawl back up the stairs. How long is this going to go on? How long are you going to play pretend with God? So you think about that. Really, it's just you adjusting to Him. So even if you're mistaken for a time, remember the Spirit intercedes for you in prayer. He just wants your attention, folks. That's what He really wants. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, Romans 8, 26. So these last two points are summarized this way. 
that grace is illumined with confession and prayer. If you want to know God's grace, in other words, then you have to at least agree with Him on what's going on, who you are, what you see when you look in the mirror. Honestly, not pretend. You know, even the real ugly things, but not just the ugly things. Because remember, confession isn't just about the things that are unrighteous in you. Confession, you can confess that you see something really wonderful in yourself that He did. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul saw it, so why can't you? Why can't you go to God and say, you know what, God, this, I'm having a fantastic day. Thank you so much for this grace-filled day. You did this. I know that, I, although, look, if I just went through the last three hours of my life five years ago, I would have never made it. I would have been a miserable crank. Somehow on the other, half, on the other side of those three hours today, I'm all right. Thanks be to God. And in that case, you're not a crank. But guess where you are? Right with him again. So don't just limit your relationship with God as, you know like some people do that thing, oh, I tripped, I stubbed my toe, mommy, daddy. The only time they ever call their parents is when they need something. The only time they ever reach out to their friends is when they need them for something. What a, that's a terrible thing to do to friends and family, and who's a greater friend and family than God? So don't use him either. He's not your little pincushion that you just go whining to when times are bad, and then when times are good, you forget about him altogether. You're just this horrible, fair-weather lover. But that's what a lot of people do, even when they hear the word confession. Like, oh, confession, yeah, confession. That means I gotta, whenever I sin, whenever things are going tough, I go to him and you know, blah, blah. No, that's bogus. That's half the equation. So grace, if you really want to see His grace, you really want to be built up, confess, say the same thing, and pray. Confession, as I've taught you again, isn't tied to sin only. It describes an agreement with God. If we're too stubborn to read the note under the keys to deliverance, then what ought we expect from Him? At that point, we can't even agree with Him on how to live the spiritual life. Think about that. I'm too busy for you, God. I don't have any problems right now, so I, we don't need to talk. Oh, really? For those of you who are parents, that's terrible. You really do want to get some goodness out of your kids, right? Do you know what I'm saying? You don't want just a phone call from the kid who's moved out. Every, the only time they ever call is they they got a problem. Right? Mom and dad want to hear from you regularly, presumably. Some parents are like, no, not really. I'm good. Fly the coop. I'm good. <laughs> right? But some people can't even agree with him on how to live the spiritual life. In other words, I, I'm good. Nothing's wrong. I don't need to read the notes. I'm busy. Can you see my day planner? I'm busy. Call you later. They send a little text, or it's like one of those horrible, you know, movies where the dad's like completely absent and, you know, sends the kids, you know, nickels and quarters and texts. We can't even agree with him sometimes on how to live the spiritual life. We are confessing in a sense that we know better and that we will self-sanctify ourselves. When we do those things, when we ignore His goodwill towards us, His commands even, when we can't agree as to how to live the spiritual life, which is a confession in of itself, then we're really going down the pathway of self-sanctification. Plop, 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 plop. So all the Spirit's saying is that if we want to live our lives out in grace orientation, we must go to God with humility and integrity in prayer. It is there that He will educate you on the finer things He's predestined you for. I mean, there's some pretty amazing, exciting things He's going to show you if you just show up to the table. If you can get beyond your own little facade 
your own little let's play pretend game. If you can get beyond all of that, there's some amazing things he wants to show you. By the way, if you approach him humbly, which is step number one, and he says, you need to read the notes I've left for you in the Word, and that my under-shepherd feeds you, then you need to listen. Because that's going to happen too. Some of you are going to go to him. This is why some of you, I would argue, don't go to him. Because you get the same story. They're like, God says, hey, you know what the deal is. Point number one, learn the Word. Listen to the under-shepherd. Listen to the people I've sent. Listen to the grace gifts I've given you in your life to guide you. You go, what's that? You're breaking up. Must be a loose line. <laughs> Darn AT&T. So for a lot of you, you're going to go to him in prayer, and that's the very first thing he's going to remind you of. How are you making out with um, classes? How are you making out with uh, reading the Bible? How are you making out with all the grace that I've given you? Huh? Huh, son? Huh, daughter? How are you making out? I don't want to talk about that one right now. I just need something. I need a handout. I came to prayer because I need something. I don't want to talk about that right now. And your dad's like, I can't give you that. You don't have the capacity for it yet. You know why? Because you're not listening to me. James 4, 6, Amplified. <clears throat> but he gives us more and more grace through the power of the Holy Spirit to defy sin and live an obedient life that reflects both our faith and our gratitude for our salvation. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud and haughty, but continually gives the gift of grace to the humble who turn away from self-righteousness. But he's going to, when you go to him in prayer, he's going to remind you of this. He's going to remind you of this every single time. How are you making out with the word? How are you making out with that little issue you've got with the guy behind the pulpit? You know, the one you've been blaming for your problems, the ones who you've been taking an offense to. How are you making out with all that stuff, by the way? Not so well? Well, get to it. You know, look at it. It's upsetting the baby. It's like, no way! I'm only one! I can be self-righteous. Get over here, mama. Now, taking all that with us, so that took up the first three quarters of our lesson this evening. It took up all of our lesson on Tuesday. Taking all that with us, which is really a lot. Tonight and uh, Tuesday night is a lot he's saying. And I hope you're taking it in stride, and I hope you're taking it to heart, because these are not, these are not things that you have the, other than your free will, that's your right to throw them out, but you really don't want to do that thing. Anyways, taking all that with us, <clears throat> we just finished up our, the first half of our current working framework. Remember, we're still pivoting on Romans 1.17 from faith to faith. That's the passage that he's had us in our transition from salvation to sanctification. We looked at the gospel, we looked at salvation. Now we're looking at salvation, sanctification as a pair, sort of. And so we, gave, we were given a working framework up here on the board. This is what the salvation perspectives looked like. Remember, God has one. I'm going to save you from sin. From man's perspective, we can look at it as three tenses, positional from the penalty of sin, that's uh, past tense, experiential, current, or present tense, from the power of sin, he uh, saves us, and he also saves us ultimately in the future from the presence of sin. And that's what we looked at. The key big picture takeaway is that the concept of salvation isn't just isolated to the judicial saving work relating to your regeneration. It's much broader than that <clears throat> up here on the board. Salvation is living 
the gospel reality. Think about that. Most of you, if I, if I ask you to raise your hand, I'm assuming most of you in here would raise your hand if I said, are you saved? Most people are like, yeah, I'm saved. Are you being saved? Do you understand what salvation is? Well, most of you would probably get, you know, most of you that are educated would probably come up with, you know, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, or you know, maybe you say Ephesians 2 as a whole, you know, parts of Romans. You'd probably maybe go back to Jesus himself, his own words. You know, repent, this kind of a thing. And you'd have a nice little bag of tricks, so to speak. And that's great, and there's nothing academically wrong with that. And that is the foundation of living the spiritual life. Remember Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is alive and powerful and active, able to, you know, divide soul, spirit, bone, marrow. So the Word is very important in all of this. But... Are you being saved daily? Do you understand? Do you live salvation as a reality? Because if you do, you really will rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks for everything. You really will if you're living in the gospel reality. So I really hope that makes sense. Salvation is living in the gospel reality. As we noted at the front end of this working framework, Peter understood this. Excuse me, go to 1 Peter 1.6. 1 Peter 1.6. In other words, you know, the apostles, even the prophets, they didn't, they didn't talk about salvation the way I would argue most contemporary Christians talk about salvation. Contemporary Christians talk about salvation equals Heaven. Salvation equals not hell. And that's what salvation is to most believers even, or at least professing Christians even. But that's not the concept of salvation that the apostles and the prophets clung to. It was much bigger. When they talked about salvation, it wasn't just the judicial forensic aspects of the gavel coming down saying, you are justified in the blood of my son. Is that part of salvation? Absolutely. Is that a transaction that must occur? Absolutely. Is that the pinpoint accurate time where a person's life is, you know, becomes regenerate? Absolutely. But salvation as a concept is much bigger than that single point in time in your life. Because if you think that way, what, where is it for all of you? Way back there. For some of you, you don't even remember when you were saved, you, when you were as young as whenever. This thing has to be a living reality to you. Salvation. 1 Peter 1.6 And that's what it was for the apostles for sure. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. We just talked about some of that. I alluded to this verse. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Now that's not just the gavel coming down. That's not just Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, folks. He's talking about the salvation of your souls. You are saved daily. Salvation is a reality. It's living. It's the point on the board. It's living the gospel reality. That's what it means to be saved. Do you understand? Being saved is like a present tense. It's not a, okay, I'm, I'm saved and it happened 20 years ago. And it's like some distant thing that you went, mm-hmm. And then there's this huge chasm of suffering and misery because you got the wrong perspective and a little growth maybe in the middle, and then you're just waiting for heaven. Well, that's not what God wants for you. He wants you to live the gospel reality. When you say, I'm saved, your reality is, I'm saved every day. Like, I'm saved. 
This is something to rejoice in right here and right now. This is fantastic. This is the very root of my life, from faith to faith. This is what this is all about. This is why he left me here. He didn't leave me here and say, hey, wasn't it nice when I did that thing for you three decades ago? Wasn't that just grand? Good luck. No, he wants to give you his perspective on the matter. His perspective, he saved you. The prophet Isaiah also understood the point on the board, salvation is living in the gospel reality. He wrote in Isaiah 61.10, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He's talking about life. Very garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. I gave you MacArthur on 61.10 as a review. Here is the Old Testament picture of imputed righteousness, the essential heart of the new covenant, when a penitent sinner recognizes he can't achieve his own righteousness by works and repents and calls on the mercy of God. The Lord covers him with his own divine righteousness by grace through his faith. From faith to faith. So let's poke our heads. We've got a couple of minutes. Let's poke our heads out of the mine shaft just for a moment before we dive back into sanctification, remembering where we came from. Go to Romans 1.16. So all of this was precipitated by our visiting this magnificent verse, this magnificent passage, Romans 1.16 and 1.17. And that phrase, from faith to faith, that we're given a righteousness from God, and it's revealed from faith to faith. Romans 1.16, though, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So keep saying the following in your minds. God saves and sanctifies. He saves and sanctifies. He saves and sanctifies. Here are some additional thoughts on the nature and cause of salvation and sanctification from our previous lessons leading up to these as of late up here on the board <coughs> on salvation. <clears throat> these are borrowed from previous lessons. God is not only righteous in justifying man based on the work of the cross, but the imputed righteousness itself that which a believer has received, creates in man the substance for a new way of life. That's the from faith part. You understand? And that new way of life is the to faith. So he did you a really big favor by kick-starting your spiritual life when he imputed righteousness to your account. And you were regenerated. That was your starting point. But he didn't just say, that's it. He said, my salvation is forever. This is salvation to me, says God, isn't intense as even. It's, I'm saving you. Anything that happens on the timeline, it's just my salvation working out in you. Think of, uh, I forget the verse, work out your own salvation. What does that mean? It's not work out something that happened 20 years ago. That means work out your salvation every single day. Working it out. Working where his co-workers, where his joint workers. He's trying to work a good thing in us every single day. That's what working out your salvation with fear and trembling means. It's gaining his perspective over time by doing what you're doing right now. Reading the notes. Reading the notes. So he's not only righteous in justifying you, but that righteousness becomes a substance for a new way of life. We also noted, again, the perseverance of the saints from faith to faith expresses that true faith is not a single event, but a way of life. That's why we spent 10, 20 lessons on that. He saved you, he sanctifies you without mistake. So from faith to faith expresses that true faith is not a single event, but a way of life. It endures. 
In this sense, the righteousness from God that is revealed is unique to true believers only, for they live by faith. So when we read something like Romans 1.17, it describes the essence of life for a true believer. It's from faith to faith. For the righteous man shall what? Live by faith. And that's a gift from God. And his gifts don't rust. Moth doesn't destroy. His gifts remain. So he didn't make a mistake when he says, I'm going to save you. He meant it. He said, when I'm going to sanctify you, he meant it. And his salvation and his sanctification, because that's what he does, he saves and sanctifies, are permanent. And they're ubiquitous. And only a believer will understand that statement. Only a believer will understand that statement. Because an unbeliever will get mind-tangled. Even true believers have trouble with it because of the decree. But a true believer has given the apparatus, the faculty, to understand what the Spirit's saying right now. That if He gives you faith and you're saved, you have it. If He says He saved you, you're saved. You see, if He said, I just sanctified you, you're sanctified. You know how you know that? Because you know in your quote-unquote heart of hearts that you've been changed. And that's the difficulty. I can't teach that thing, and it's not my business. That's your business. But we know Scripture says, read the end of 1 John 3 and the beginning of 1 John 4, and you'll see that the Spirit Himself convicts a believer that they are saved. And that same Spirit is the one that animates this, these Scriptures in your soul so that they too make sense to you. They may not make perfect academic sense right away. And it may take some time. But the fundamentals are that you want to learn the Word of God. You want to obey His will. You want to do things that are pleasing to God. You want to do these things. Yes, some of you have a hellacious flesh. So don't go in crisis mode because your flesh takes you down sometimes. Sometimes for periods of time. Get over yourself. Everybody else can see it. Why can't you? He saved you when he saw even the disgustingness that you don't see in yourself. So there's no reason to go in crisis mode. Side note. The point is, though, as I close, Romans 1.17 describes the essence of life for a true believer with emphasis on true believer. It's a way of life, folks. He saves, he sanctifies. To him, his perspective, done deals. And a true believer will understand that, will say, but I'm such a jackass. Yeah, he already knows. But you know what he did for you? He gave you faith. And he says, if you stick this thing out, I'll give you more faith. And I'll give you more faith by grace. And I'll keep doing this thing. I'll grow you. I'll mature you. To my glory, I promise. And the true believer says, I dig that. That's right up my alley. That's what I want. I long for a relationship with my Lord. That is my oxygen you understand that's what a true believer senses whereas unbeliever won't a professing believer won't understand that and so they'll be forever confused until they're saved and then when they read or they're taught correctly the likes of Romans 1.17, their mind goes, that's why my head is so big. I used to have a normal size head. No, I didn't. Your head's going to go, amen? All right, Romans 1.17, amen. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned. 
out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.